Welcome to Centering, the podcast on Asian American Christianity. I'm your host, Irene Cho. This season, we're featuring guests with various perspectives on Asian American topics and the church. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Centering. I'm your host, Irene Cho. I am excited once again to be presenting to you two phenomenal guests, two people who I greatly and deeply respect for the topic that we are covering today, which is engaging Asian American Christians in social justice issues. I am here today with Reverend Kevin Doy and Jane Hong, who is a dear friend of mine. We've been friends for a long time and shared lots of many stories together. So I'm excited to be here in this conversation with them to share about their journey and how they've come across some of the struggles and the victories of getting our folks engaged in these issues that we believe are important for our communities. So welcome to you both. Thank you. for having us. So excited to have you both here. I'd love to dive right in and ask the big question of, you know, your own story. So if you could share both, what has been your own journey of coming into social justice awareness? Why being engaged with these issues in your churches became something important for you? Yeah, I'd love to hear from you, Kevin, if you want to start, that would be great. Sure. I think... Well, my, my parents, my, my mother and my father were both in the incarceration camps, um, Japanese incarceration camps during World War II. So that has always kind of been part of my story that I inherited. And so even though it was kind of through their eyes or through my family's eyes, I, I have always been interested in that, that part of history. It really wasn't, I think, until I was in my 20s, my mid-20s, late 20s, when I came to Fuller Seminary where I got in touch with kind of being an Asian American person. And I think from there and reading the Gospels and understanding what the Gospel is, just realizing that Jesus, he, he cared for those basically on the margins, the most vulnerable. And so those were ethnic, racial divides, gender, sexual, religious, uh, socioeconomic class. and you know, Jesus' ministry really was about caring for those who didn't have access to power and to the centers of structures and systems just for human dignity. And so when I think of the gospel as a particular Christian vision of human flourishing, I really understand the kingdom of God is really about justice. Mm. That there isn't, justice isn't like a slight issue or there's really the gospel and it's Jesus died on the cross, forgives us our sins so we can go to heaven. But it includes really at the center, this idea of God's redemption of all of human life, which includes justice. And um, so at our church, we had three values, justice, community, and healing. And we really felt like you couldn't have one of those without the other. And so justice Mm -hmm. was inherent in, being a Christian community, being a context for healing, and to be just is really to advocate for those other two as well. And mm. so that's kind of how I saw I that. I love it. I love it. Jane, what about you? Like, how did this become, get on your radar, you know, yeah. become something that's also important to you? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I just actually think of back when I was 
I don't know, an elementary, junior high, yeah. <laughs> learning about history, world history, U.S. history. And honestly, the stories and the heroes that stuck out to me were like Harriet Tubman, mm-hmm. you know, uh, bringing people through the Underground Railroad and Martin Luther King Jr. with the Civil Rights Movement. Like those two stories alone, just, I don't know, just like marinated in my soul, you know. And I agree with Pastor Kevin. Like, I just feel like if you read the Bible, if you know about Jesus, you know, then justice is is right there. It's just, it's so important to the gospel message. And yet the church is always missing that piece. And there's always that kind of push uh, towards, oh, just focus on the soul. You know, don't worry Mm -hmm. about politics or this, that, and the other. But uh, I am a Korean American from Los Angeles, the Los Angeles area. And in 1992, when I was a freshman in high school, we went through the LA riots. Mm. And depending on what, where you get your news or your information from, I mean, some people will say, oh yeah, the LA riots happened because of you know, Rodney King, who was severely beaten by like four officers. And they were kind of like let go with a slap on the hand. But there's like such a backstory to that. And basically, while rioting and looting was happening in South Central and Koreatown, the police, LAPD, were all in like Beverly Hills and West Hollywood, (laughs) right? And we saw, right, our stores burning down, our people, our friends, our moms and dads just just so affected. So I actually looked up some of the facts because it's just been so long, but mm-hmm. over 2,300 Korean owned stores yep. were looted or burned, making up 45% of all damages caused by the riot, close to $400 million in damages. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like, even if you look up on Wikipedia, like you don't get to the Korean American story of the LA riots until yep. you're like way down. Like you got to scroll down different yep. subheadings, but you know, I think there was just that feeling of, oh, this is so unjust. And why are two minority groups being yep. pitted against each other when and clearly there's the frustration of the African-American community because of all the white oppression? You know, like this shouldn't like, if anything, we should be working in solidarity, you know, yep. not blaming each other or being like scapegoats or this, that and the other. And so... And I don't know if many people know, but a week after the riots, there was a huge march in K-Town. It was, it is known as the largest Asian American protest ever held in a city. There's about 30,000 mostly Korean Americans and Koreans that marched down the streets of LA. And -hmm. I was there with my dad. Mm -hmm. And I remember just seeing a sea of people. Like we filled up all the streets, like on all ends, even the sidewalks. And we Mm. would just chant together. We want peace. We want Mm. justice, Mm. you know? And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. This like, wow. Like our voice needs to be heard, you know? Both, both of you, your journeys are so powerful. Jane, as you were sharing, it leads us into the next question, which is really like, what are some sociological historical reasons that have led to some of the disengagement of Asian Americans, Asian American Christians in particular with social justice issues, you know, because you're talking about the LA riots and it wasn't just the Rodney King trial verdict, but it was a buildup really, um, even with the due trial with Latasha Harlan's murder. I mean, that was very much because it's such two different 
storylines merging and conflicting together into this crash, right? Of the oppression that Blacks are experiencing, you know, by whites, but then also the immigrant story of how Koreans, immigrants are coming over and just trying to open a business and not being very intentional with what their businesses are doing in as it affects the black community right and so i'm not wanting to villainize the korean community at all because you know my growth has been about the immigrant story because i've learned mostly from certain perspective as well growing up in the east coast i didn't come until after the riots were done when i came back here to la for college knowing that all of this was happening and for me my engagement wasn't like I always grew up as well, reading things, being moved by it, things that were unjust, even as a six-year-old were very much to my heart. And so just like you reading things in history and learning about it, it, it had always been my heartbeat, but I never put the two together until I got to seminary. And my frustration, because I think while I was in college, that was when mega churches were huge and you know everyone was building the secret, seeker-friendly churches. And my frustration at the lack of engagement of the church. And then I took my exegesis of the gospels class. You know, it's ironic because I went to a school right now that most of the professors are professing, why are we talking about social justice issues? And why are we talking about racial reconciliation? When I'm like, this school that is talking about this was the school, the very school that started to spark my realization that this is everything that Jesus talks about. And what was weird for me is that I never realized that. Like nobody preached that to me. Nobody talked to me about how Jesus was engaging. Just like you said, Jane, it was all about my personal growth and my personal conviction. Like being a loving neighbor, It nev- we never really dissected what that actually meant and how much Jesus's preaching was subversive to the systems that were oppressing and marginalizing. And so here I am in my exegesis of the gospels class and all of the, all of the shackles on my eyes and around everything just all came down. And I was like, Oh my gosh, Mm. this is everything. (laughs) Where has this been my entire, you know, journey of seminary training of Christian education training of like growing up in the church And so I would love to hear from both of you, like part of your frustration of starting to get engaging with churches in your own congregations. Maybe some of you can, you know, either of you can really inform us what have been some of the reasons behind the sociological and historical implications for why the way that we've been preached to in the Asian churches have not been engaging with social justice issues. Yeah. Can I jump in just because absolutely it's so complex and I know there's so much to say, but totally. I feel We're going like- to solve this all, by the way, in the 30 minutes. <laughs> I, mean, I say that every episode. <laughs> yes. I feel like looking at history is important and, and culture, right? So just really briefly, history in our home countries, right? I feel like uh, people that speak up, they get shut down. You know, mm-hmm. think of whether it's the communism in China or the shame culture that we all have. Think of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. It's just awful, awful history. And there's like that saying, I I heard it's Asian saying, the nail that sticks out will get hammered in. Right. Right? And so we, we have that culture embedded in us. And if you think about our Asian American history in the United States, it hasn't fared, like our people haven't fared that well either. It's over Mm -hmm. 170 years of history, but you think of, for example, the Chinese Exclusion Act in the Mm -hmm. 1880s, right? You think of 
and I, I think Pastor Kevin said it right, not Japanese internment, but straight up Japanese incarceration. Right. American, Americans, right? Uh, in the 40s, the LA riots uh, of Koreatown in the 90s. It's like, with with this history, I feel like generally speaking, the immigrant population just, just we've like, it's like, no, we've learned our lesson from history on both sides. We just want to lay low and mm. survive and then thrive. And, uh, you know, I think we're, because of our different histories, um, maybe just the family flourishing because we've seen so much death and separation, things like that. I mean, it's pretty complex. I, I'll let Pastor Kevin jump into, but if you go down the line, I just feel like the more assimilated and stabilized we become, I, I can at least speak from what I've seen in the Korean American circles because I come from a... a large Asian American church in Orange County. I was there for 15 years. And then I was part of a LA church plant for three, four years. Uh, let me tell you, Asian Americans, we like our white privilege too. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So if we can kind of move to, hey, as long as I'm not included with the black and brown communities and I'm not going to, you know, like my, my road to success isn't go- going to be blocked. I- I'm okay. I'm mm-hmm. good. I don't need to speak up. And so there's, it's just a, I think just a plethora of reasons why our yeah. people don't want to engage and it's complex. Yeah. And for yeah. me as a Korean American, learning about even the last hundred and whatever years of, you know, Japanese occupation, then the war, you know, I mean, the, the level of turmoil and uprootedness, it, it, it is natural from the PTSD yeah. that you would bring your families over and be like, don't get involved. You know, my mom, the stories of all five of her brothers being involved in the rioting because the Korean government was trying to be established and each president, each president, like stealing money and like government getting uprooted, like her brothers all were arrested because they were in protests. Right. And my mother couldn't stand it. And it was like, don't get killed. Don't get involved keep your head down, just do your best, you yeah. know? And it comes from this PTSD of that because every night it was like, are my brothers going to die? Are they going to come home? They're jumping around on rooftops trying to like run away from, you know, officers in the government and like sneak into the house. And so, and then my, my great, my grandfather was a Senator and he like the politics of it basically killed him. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think of, I, I think James Wright, there is a kind of a, a cultural, understanding. I don't know if it's ever said, but we just don't want to make waves. I think they're in the church anyway. I think I've noticed that. So this is more anecdotally, although we've done some research at the Asian American Center that that firms some of this is I think Asian Americans don't always know their history. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of the oppression that Asians and Asian Americans having their history, you know, even their family histories goes back to their home countries. And yes, some of us may have come here. Our families have come here because uh, out of choice and desire to make a better life. Some of us have come um, of force as indentured servants. I mean, folks have come to be resettled because of violence in their countries. You know, obviously there's history of European, French, British and American colonialism. So I think it starts there. And I think because though uh, Asian Americans have been here in this country for 150 years, a lot of the immigration happened after 1965. 
And so, you know, there, there have been Asian Americans who have been involved in civil rights. You know, mm-hmm. you think about Fred Korematsu and Grace Lee Boggs and Yuri Kuchiyama and others who have been involved in civil rights, black civil rights, protests against Jap- Japanese incarceration. So there are, there are folks who have Asian descent who have been involved. But I, I think for the church, there's a couple of things going on. I think the first generation, we have to understand that as first generation immigrants, as minorities in a dominant culture, they are trying to survive. And so the church often yeah. plays a role as a community center as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there is justice going on. It just looks different. It, mm-hmm. it looks like being a sanctuary where we don't have to explain ourselves, where we can feel comfortable in our own skin, where we can eat our own food, where we network so we know where jobs are at, we get mm-hmm. help with our immigration papers, all those kinds of things. And then I think it's the second generation, which becomes very interesting because what I've noticed, and I think it bears out in in research, is that there is so much internalized racism Mm. that there is a distancing of kind of being an Asian from from who we are. And so, yeah, we want to be, as Jane mentioned, kind of honorary white people. Mm. And... And then when we're we're woke, then we then we tend to to <laughs> to find solidarity with other people of color, but right. at the same time forgetting about our own people again. Yeah. Right. And so it gets really complicated how this actually gets worked out and what it means yeah. to be Asian American. So the last thing I will say, I've noticed both in the classroom and in in the church world, is that there's still a prevailing understanding that we are Christians first yes. and ethnic people second, if, ethni- if eth- ethnicity matters at all. And, and so that whole corrective of, well, yes, we, we bear allegiance to Jesus, but we can't do that as some kind of neutral person. We always do right. that as ethnic people. Right. And so ethnic awareness and development is not part of our discipleship, number mm-hmm. one. And so we don't, we don't have an interest in ethnic culture and our histories. And then the second thing is, I think there's still a prevailing understanding that somehow church isn't political. And my understanding is that church is inherently political, that the kingdom of God is political, that when we say Jesus is Lord, we are saying Caesar is not. Mm-hmm. And Jesus gets crucified because he's, a, he's seen as a political threat. It's called the kingdom of God. And so I don't mean that the church is supposed to be partisan, but I do believe that the church is a social ethic that has political, that makes a political statement about the kind of people we are going to be and the kind of people that we are called to love that looks different than the world. But I I think that the, the church in general and the Asian American church as well, I think wrestles, still wrestles with how to understand our ethnic identity as part of normal discipleship and seeing our churches and our communities as a a political body that's in resistance to injustice and violence in our world and in our neighborhoods. That's so good. Okay, going based on that, because some of my frustration has been going to an Asian American church because it's what you say, Kevin, the pendulum swinging from second geners. I... 
I also wanted to deny my Koreanness because of survival. You know, I went to a very predominantly Jewish school, you know, and then I came to LA and all of a sudden I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of Asian Americans. And you go through this process where you're just, like you said, you don't have to explain yourself. It's comfortable, all these things, right? And yet I get frustrated now because it it's so frequently, I, I speak, I talk to people and the English ministry services or the congregations or the second gen churches, be, end up feeling like you said, a community center. And so I'm like, I don't need to go to church to like go to a bowling club or to go to a movie club or to go to like a hangout club. You know, that's great for some of you all, but like, that's not why church is important to me. And yet it's so frequently feels like church ends up being that. Like we're going to be this Asian American exclusive club with some speckles of white people here and some speckles of other people there you know, but we'll be this pan-Asian thing and it'll be really cool and really fun. And the biggest thing we're going to do is like in small groups, we're going to have little like baby small groups because it's family predominantly. And for the single people, it's going to be like, pretend we're not going clubbing together, pretend like we're just going to the movies to like Mm -hmm. be super uber Christians. And I'm like, is that it? Like, this is what our faith as Asian Americans means that we get to hang out together under this umbrella called Jesus and we're going to go to the movies together and then like find spouses with one another and then make babies the end you know and that's what it feels like so frequently yeah. when you go to a church you know I, I mean and I guess it's a lot of churches these days because you said like church is considered not political but I just I feel that there when that wears off that people are thirsty and hungry for something else. So my, my second question then is, what have you all figured out or understood or seen as being leading factors that do end up motivating these Asian American Christians in your congregations to be engaged with these issues outside of like demanding it <laughs> or whatnot? I mean, again, this is... Uh such a complex question because I feel like first it needs to matter. You know, you hear, you heard from Kevin and myself, we have very personal stories tied to like a big justice issue, which is part of our narrative. But I feel like the church uh, can do a better job educating its people about justice, right? Seeing things from other people's point of view. I feel like one of the big hurdles we have, at least I could speak for Korean Americans is kind of the main narrative we're taught is you have to be successful. Like church and Jesus can even be secondary or we use him as like magic Jesus to bless (laughs) our studies and our business so that we can be successful. So that's like the main goal. It's, it's really towards money uh, and maybe like the enjoyment pleasures of life and doing that as a family. And so Christianity. Yeah. So (laughs) <laughs> that needs to change. It's so hard. I When I think of when I was a youth pastor for six years in Orange County and just really trying to engage my youth, uh, even in youth group, because now we're dealing with third generation kids and the second gen adults had so bought into the Orange County suburban white privilege narrative. They wanted the same thing for their kids. Mm-hmm. So it was even hard to get them to come out to church. But Every once in a while, I'd have a parent pull me to the side and say, can you please take our youth kids on a mission trip so they can like learn a lesson? They could see how hard life really is 
And so they won't be so entitled. And I'm thinking, man, like, I can't even <laughs> hear the amount of Friday, you know, Friday night services out of like to love Jesus more, but you want me to do this? Also, you're part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think what's been hopeful is when I, like four years ago, went to LA to help with the church plant. And that church, you know, it went from, I don't know, maybe like 60 people to 700 in three years, mainly millennial Asian Americans. I think part of it is that they're millennials. The other part is that they're in the city. And mm-hmm. already they are so primed for social justice. Mm. They, 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 they know, like they want to see it happen. And I think it's because maybe part of it is that urban setting. So they're seeing whether it's, you know, racial inequality, you know, economic inequality, whatnot. And I feel like in some ways it's like we can respond in this way as a second generation because we don't have the language barrier. We understand, you know, multiple sides of the story. Uh, We're so intersectional in our, in our lives. Right. And uh, we care about our communities, which includes black and brown people, you know, our friends or our spouses or whatnot and our coworkers. And so I'm, I'm hopeful with the millennials and people in urban spaces. Um, and there's, there's so many good things going on, but I worry about the rest of America, yo. <laughs> to be honest, I really do. <laughs> yeah. Especially Orange County. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I could say more, but I'll, I'll, I'll give Kevin a chance to jump <laughs> well, in. Well, and Kevin, your church was in Orange County. Yeah. <laughs> so please do share because you're the reason I invited you was because, I mean, the first time we met, you were presenting in one of our classes and you were just sharing how your church was engaging in the community. I was like, why do I live 50 minutes away from you? Why are you? Why is your church not 10 minutes down the street? And so how did you get your church who was predominantly Asian American, right? right, To be engaged in a, I mean, the city of Fullerton, y'all, like if those of you who are in the East Coast, the movie Better Luck Tomorrow is based on a high school in Fullerton, California, (laughs) which is where Kevin's church (laughs) is. So please share your insight and wisdom. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know if I have a great answer, but I, I think to piggyback on on what Jane had said, I really do think that leaders need to have a, a kind of conversion, which happens through encounter. Mm. And I think that encounter can be like scripture that's kind of opened up mm. to us, whether that because we're sitting and listening to a sermon or we're in a classroom or we're talking to somebody, but Somehow the word of God is proclaimed in a different kind of way that that really opens up a different world to us. And I, the other way I think that ha- that it happens that you know our attitudes and the things that we care about change is because we encounter real people. And so I think mm-hmm. what some of Jane, I think what you're describing yeah. is that because uh, we're both from Southern, all of us are in Southern California, that there is a kind of way that we can drive past things that we don't want to see and people Mm -hmm. we don't want to engage with. But whether it's in our church communities or outside of them, um, there's so much pain. And if we just pay attention to the pain of people in our lives, we will will bump up, up against people in situations where people are hurting. 
And oftentimes those are, are justice issues. So I think that's where it starts. I think unless you have people who are in education or people who as a vocation think about these things, I think that the, the people in our churches, not because they're not intelligent, but they just don't right. think about these things. And right. e- even to name the, the difficult space of being a minority in ethnic minority, you might be a gender minority in, in a dominant culture. Like if we don't talk about that, then <laughs> I, I think people aren't going to have any language to describe their lives. Um, yeah. So that's, that's number one. And I, I think it's a long work. If you're in a church, leading a church, it is about teaching and presenting a different kind of gospel than most people have heard. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's giving space for people to receive and embrace that, to be angry about that, to be defensive about mm-hmm. that, uh, which will come. And then really people change because they live into the change that they want to see happen. And so I think it really does start with giving people simple opportunities to engage with others that they normally wouldn't engage with. I don't recommend that as a kind of like end, but it's a great start. Yeah. So, you know, that's how we got involved in our neighborhoods, but I even think about the queer community and, Mm -hmm. you know, for the longest time, folks would talk abstractly about like, well, do you think gay mm. people can be in leadership at our church? Can gay people teach Sunday school? And I, and I said, yes, and they already are, but you don't know it. Mm. And the, the folks I think who had the most difficulty with like LGBTQI inclusion were because frankly, they didn't know anybody or they didn't think they knew mm-hmm. anybody. But once mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. knew somebody like a real person mm-hmm. that they have already loved, then something happens to them. They either have to, Mm -hmm. they have to make a decision. Either my theology doesn't work because it's, it's a bad theology. It's crap theology. And so I need to change my theology because it is right to love and include and embrace this person. Or I am going to side with my theology and have to live in this terrible tension that my theology does not allow me to love this person fully. And I think at our church, we try to give people space to deal with that. All we can do is confront them with that. Yeah. I love it. You know, we ask all the time, or at least I do. I just, I just did another podcast where I was the guest and I said, you know, one of the most essential things for youth ministry and and especially high school and college ministry is how do we help our young people ask better questions? How do we ask them better questions and how do we have them ask better questions of themselves? And I think that as leaders, we can't be afraid of those better questions that challenge us, challenge our standard, challenge what we have been been become used to what we believe and and to think that that's the be all end all means that we're done with our growth and i don't think that jesus is ever done with our growth and i think of my own journey with the you know lgbtqia issue like i had been asking these questions 15 20 years ago 
but my growth seeing that process over the last 20 years to not be afraid to danger myself into that territory that is unfamiliar. Jane, I'd love to hear from you. One last word as we're closing out. Wisdom, a nugget you would like to give us. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a practical person and I know there's a lot of people in ministry that are listening. And so just to kind of finish up the last comment I was saying, uh, I think listening to your congregation, your people is important and kind of discovering together how you can engage in social justice. And I think something that we would hear a lot is how our second gen people were tired of the first gen model, right? Which is, Mm -hmm. okay, we'll do some sort of social service. We'll feed the homeless or we'll invite people to come to something and we'll give them food like once a year and then we'll close the doors again. And they really felt just how that wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And so what we were able to really see um, bloom and blossom is pockets of people coming together and saying, for example, you know, I'm really interested in foster care. What can we learn more about it? What can we do? And so we would host kind of like an educational event. We would bring a panel of speakers uh, that all d- deal with the foster care system in different ways to first educate ourselves. And then we would see people then start learning like, oh, this is what I can do. That, could, that was like 30 people in, in the church of a few hundred. Mm-hmm. And you know how maybe like our old church thinking is like, no, it's got to be a big campaign. The whole church has right. to be involved and we got to all do this. But I realized, no, we want people to be excited. We want it to be those God-given dreams in their hearts or those sparks. Yeah. And then we want them to have ownership. And so why can't we do this with different groups of people within the church, right? Like, totally. okay. Maybe you care about homelessness. What can you do about that? You care about foster care. What can we do about that? And then empower them to run with it. So it's not forced on them, you know? And I would say for church leaders that are afraid of being like too political, you could have lay people run it, you know? So let's say your elections are coming up to even have lay people say, Hey, we just want to really understand the issues on both ends. So we're just going to come together and kind of like study this together so we can all vote well. We're not going to tell people how to vote um, and opening up your church for spaces like that. But And you're going to have lay people do it. So it does, it's not coming from the senior pastor. Like there's so many things you can do. And it's just exciting. You know, one, one last thing, sorry, is because I, yeah. I sat in on a, a presentation from someone who worked with the local government. And she said, you know, the real way to make a difference, right? is, and she used a different kind of uh, phrase. She said, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So we've been taught the nail that sticks out gets hammered in as Asian Americans and Asians. But she said, no, here it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So attend those city council meetings or, you know, show up in numbers to those protests, sign those petitions, call your representatives, because the more you do that, you'll see policy change, or you'll see, you know, the government back down on things, you know, and so I think that was just really exciting to learn. And we're in a a good place to learn and move forward in those ways. And so I just really want to encourage the listeners uh, that there is something we can do. And when you're overwhelmed, right, by bad news, and you're tired, (laughs) because it's sometimes really depressing to be so informed and aware, uh, good soul care, right? Some, yeah. some good food and you, you could step away and watch a silly movie. But it is, a, I think, a, a lifelong journey, uh, a lifestyle that we should embrace as Christians to care for the poor, the oppressed, right? Like yep. speak up for those that don't have a voice and 
make things just, right? Like yeah. as on earth, as it is in heaven, right? And so, yeah. I love I it. Know, that was a, a lot of last words. <laughs> oh, it's great. Um, well, what a great way to is. end. And I want to encourage, you know, all our listeners that it's not political isn't, that's not where we're going at, right? right it's not right. about the church in the, you know, 14th century trying to gain power. Oh, it's no, about yeah. reaching out and being neighbors to one another. And that means advocating. And that sometimes yeah. means we have to get involved politically. And that sometimes means we have to understand how the system works. We have to understand where the system is broken and who are being oppressed by it. So I really want to encourage our listeners, just all these words have been so amazing and powerful. Don't be afraid to ask better questions of yourself as you enter into these territories that might be unfamiliar. I know that your book reading list is really long probably, but maybe if you've read read a certain type of author who is white and male over the last five years, maybe you read somebody else. Just expand your book reading list. I really challenge you in that way. I've I have made the resolution this year that every book I read will be written by an author of color. And that's been really intentional on my part because I've grown up with a certain type of background, a certain type of theological training, and I am still continually challenging and pushing myself. And it's a lot of information that you get, but how so much more powerful. You're preaching the way that you're running your church, the leading um, others, People want to be able to help other people. It's in our human nature. It's in our human spirit to be of assistance. To The love your neighbor concept isn't outrageous. Jesus was telling and reminding us something that is already innate in us. So I just challenge all our leaders to ask one another what books need to be read on social justice engagement, what this looks like, and go down the roller coaster rabbit trail. It, it's so life-changing and it's just so faith-changing. So thank you to you both. You, you just everything you've presented in this episode has been amazing. And I, I continue to close out every episode thing saying thank you. We have solved this <laughs> issue problem. <laughs> because these are such huge issues and yeah. you know, yeah. in these short 30 minute conversations. But thank you so much for bringing your wisdom. This is Centering. I'm your host, Irene Cho. Please be sure to join us next week as we tackle another gigantic topic with some more phenomenal guests. I hope you all have a blessed amazing week. We're all about community at Centering. We invite you to join the conversation by sending your comments and questions at centeringpodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to visit our website at centered.today for a list of other shows and resources. This episode is produced by Jason Chu, edited by Carl Catedral with music by Mark Redito. I'm your host, Irene Cho. And above all else, we want to remind you that God embraces all of who you are. 